Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 145, Live Oak with Moss. Today we welcome our old friend Hugh Ryan to the disco. Hugh is the author of the new book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, a look at the borough's LGBTQ history. We had Hugh pick a book for us to read, and he selected a new edition of a collection of Walt Whitman's poems entitled Live Oak with Moss, which features brand new, beautiful illustrations by Brian Selznick. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! And also joining us mid-worldwide book tour is our good friend and fellow Bennington grad, Hugh Ryan. Hi, Hugh. Hey. It's good to see y'all again. Yeah. The last time we were all together, um, we were at a small campus somewhere in the Northeast. It was mm-hmm. very, very cold, and I was very, very upset. I have a very visceral memory of sitting in a classroom and passing like basically the equivalent of notes back and forth with the three of you making fun of whoever was giving the lecture at that moment. Yes. That happened a lot. That happened I a would lot. never do something like that, Hugh. How dare you tarnish my reputation? Well, I have many excellent memories of Hugh. I mean, many, many, because now I'm talking about you like you're dead, but uh, <laughs> Hugh was my Only assigned... Inside. Yeah. <laughs> he was my assigned mentor at Bennington, and it was like the greatest matchup, I'm assuming, in Bennington history, because we were like instantaneously oh, yeah. friends. We were in a million workshops together. Hugh was so hardworking and so generous with the way that he read everybody's work, and he's the best. So everyone should read his book. Yeah. I, I talk about you so much, Julia, that my, my partners have started making fun of me when I mention you. They're like, you're mentee. And I'm like, okay, I, I guess I can stop saying that. But you've never met her, so. Well, Hugh, so it, it's been a bit of a journey, right? So you graduated about 10 years ago from graduate school. And this is your first um, your first book of your own. I know that you did some ghostwriting um, stuff. and you, You've done a, a lot of journalism what was the path for you? How did how did you go from being a grad student to to struggling journalist to big time famous writer? Uh, the path is basically a clusterfuck. I graduated, <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that my thesis was no good. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it didn't go anywhere. It had no point. I spent most of my time at school writing personal essays, and at, like by the time I got to graduation, I was like, I hate talking about myself. Why would I ever <laughs> expose myself that way? Uh, so I just sort of threw it aside, and I was ghostwriting uh hardy boys and nancy drew yeah there we uh, go let's they were look, terrible. let's look that out ladies and <laughs> gentlemen <laughs> worst things i have ever written in my entire life and eventually i got let go because i made nancy drew say hell and damn which i didn't know she wasn't allowed to say it probably was covered in like the 120 page bible that i didn't read but <laughs> someone else should have caught that but I did that for a couple of years, and I, I even had an agent who I was working with uh, who really was pushing me to do more kids' books. I ended up ghostwriting the memoir of a not-famous celebrity kid. Uh, it was terrible. Just It's a one child. of those books that you only ever see on the remainder table at Barnes & Noble, and you're oh. like, who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> and you're like, I had, I had rent to pay. I had, a, I had hardwood floors to clean. Yeah, I thought this was going to make me famous, you know, being the 
ghostwriter for someone no one's ever heard of. Uh, <laughs> and so I took some time off after that. I was like, I told my agent, I was like, I got to get my head back on right. I've been doing bullshit for five years because I thought it would pay the bills. And it turns out, one, I'm bad at it. And two, I hate it. So it just was like, <laughs> I felt like shit, you know? And I was right. like, my writing yeah. has gone to shit. I've done nothing with my degree. Uh, and so I just started writing the stuff I actually wanted to do, which is more historically based and more about Brooklyn, the city I was living in. And I just stumbled into the realization one day that I knew literally nothing about the gay history of Brooklyn. And I went to a library, convinced there would just be a book. And when there wasn't, I was like, what? Is it like, like, is there just no history? Like, do we just right. appear here in like 1992 in Williamsburg? <laughs> Are gay people like vampires? Can we not cross moving water? You know, is the East River stopping us? There was and, an erasure concert and everyone just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so then I just spent years working on that, just doing the research. I didn't have an agent. I, I didn't even know I was writing a book. I was just doing research. I got a grant from the public library to take three months off and just work on that. And they, the first thing they said to me when I sat down to meet with them about the grant was, when you're done here, you should have your book proposal ready. Hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm writing a book. And and literally, they were right. The last week of the grant, I got an email from my current agent. And he was like, just, you know, heard about you. And I saw you were doing this grant. I was wondering if you have a book proposal. And I was like, I, I actually do. Whoa. Yes. Uh, hmm. And it just sort of rolled out from there. It's a great story for our listeners. So how did you get this grant? I think that sounds like a cool intermediate step. So how did you fall in there? Basically, I knew at that point that there was more research that I needed to do. And I started looking around for research-based grants. And the New York Public Library is an incredible institution for doing research. And they really support LGBT scholarship. They've got a great collection. And they have a grant program for it. And it's a, a small grant. The application was not hard. And I think it was like 15000 bucks when I did it. And oh, my gosh. Yeah, wow. that was amazing. It took gave me three months to just write. Oh, and so I went in, I mean, I went really hardcore for it. Like I was already doing research there. I told everyone who worked there that I wanted it. I contacted the grant managers. I met with everyone. Yep. I met with the donors whose name it was in. Like I was like, oh, anything wow. I can do to make this happen, I am that's willing great. to do it. That's the way you gotta be, right? Like, that's yeah. so huge. Yeah, especially when uh, you don't have a big yeah, track record. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... The cool thing here is like you sort of manifested this thing into being, right? Like you, you were like, this thing doesn't exist. I'm the perfect person to write it. I don't have any money. Oh, hey, here's this thing. I mean, you essentially gave yourself your own book advance by getting that that fellowship. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and it made it possible. Without that, I would never have had the time to sit down and really concentratedly think about it to do the work. Like, I think the work of history is often not just finding the information, but then taking the time to think about, like, what does this mean? Why does this information flow the way it does? Yeah. And the grant was when I was able to do that. It just, mm. it requires time. That is so and you cool. also, as part of the process, work putting up and I don't remember where this falls in your actual writing of the book but when you started your pop-up histories um your pop-up right. art gallery so you're also at that same time collecting images and artworks and stories that were outside the writing and history process is that right yeah yeah and it actually was really um foundational to the book because we decided I was doing this pop-up museum of queer history we'd started accidentally I threw a one-night party in my apartment that was jokingly called the pop-up museum of queer history and I had people make exhibits 
and 300 people showed up and oh <laughs> nope. they were like fuck yeah. that i'd be out <laughs> 14 <laughs> cops showed up at midnight and shut oh. the party down oh it I was that's when it got insane <laughs> <laughs> but everyone kept saying oh when's the next one you yeah. know like and there was a real hunger for it and i was yeah. like oh people do want this history and then a couple years later we were like fully established we knew what we were doing we we're like we're gonna do a brooklyn show it's gonna be based on brooklyn's history and for the first time ever we got like basically no proposals for exhibits no Nobody knew anything at all. Whoa. And that that was the start where I was like, how do we not, wait, I don't know anything. You know, it was like this real moment of like suddenly realizing my own ignorance. Right. Well, and you know, even like, I, I feel like I have, like I have a, a pretty good understanding of, uh, of the history of, of uh, homosexuality in America. Uh, because from a very young age, my, my stepbrother was the first Boy Scout who came out as gay. And, you know, wow. he was involved in, that huge lawsuit against them. This was like in 1979 or whatever. Really, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, my my stepbrother, my stepbrother Tim. He was the he was the one who took it to the Supreme Court. Holy that's shit! That's incredible. Wow. That's so yeah. great. You guys didn't know that. I've no. never mentioned this on the show before. <laughs> yeah. I I remember really vividly. Um, we had been on summer vacation and um, we got home and my mom picked us up at the airport and she said, "Just so you know, uh, Tim came out of the closet." He's an Eagle Scout, and they kicked him out, and now he's suing the Boy Scouts. And I was like eight, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Um, wow! But you know, history is everywhere. But you know, if you, I think if you grow up in Northern California, as Ryder did, also, like you have a pretty good understanding of stuff just because it's it's you're culturally aware uh, because of proximity to San Francisco. Yeah. But for me, like when I started to read your book, and just when I was thinking about it, like for me, like it's Stonewall is the beginning of it in New York. Yeah. And of course, mm-hmm. that's absurd. You know, that's like right. saying, oh, there were no gay people there until there was a riot. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> right. Right. it's just such a huge cultural gap that I think a lot of us have around any sort of large scale uh, cultural movement because we attach uh, meaning to like whatever the, the powder keg moment was. Right? Mm-hmm, right. But of course, there had to be decades and decades and decades and decades of stuff beforehand. And your book, I mean, you go through it. It's such an anthropological zeal. Yeah. Um, and you bring everyone so alive. The the thing that really jumped out at me, and I, I suppose it's silly that I it, it's so surprising to me, was that how the the docks were a haven for gays and lesbians before the the, the Brooklyn docks closed. I was like, oh, that seems strange. Like that would like why would that be the place? But then of course, like well, of course, there's a lot of young people there working, working class mm-hmm. people that can't get jobs in other places well of course they're gonna find their own click there essentially was, was that yeah. a surprise to you it, it was and you know what's really funny about that though actually is that as soon as I sort of was realizing that and recognizing that I had this moment where I was like I think I know nothing about the queer history of Brooklyn but the play A View from the Bridge is all about a guy on the docks in Brooklyn who is sexually suspect another man kisses him you know and I knew that I knew Arthur Miller right. but somehow mm-hmm. like the fact that that had to be grounded in something, like why was he writing this if it wasn't a real experience, right. just sort of right. missed yeah. me. And and the more I thought about it, the more I saw things like that, where I was like, actually, this history is present. We just don't ever acknowledge it. Exactly. Yeah, I was telling right. you, I was telling you that in LA, I you know moved to the, this neighborhood of Los Angeles called Silver Lake, um, and this was in two thousand, right, 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 right when I was at Bennington, actually. So this is like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And like uh, the movie Beginners came out. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys remember that movie, but and there's a, there's a flashback to 
this, the gay history of Silver Lake in that movie. And I, I was living in Silver Lake at the time and I remember being like, what? And then sure enough, I started looking around and you see like there's all these old no cruising signs in Silver right. Lake. And I was like, there's such a rich history here. And then there was this bookstore that wasn't really a bookstore. It was called like Circus of Books and has this whole gay history. And oh, yeah. Also, and oh, then yeah. there's a, a, a bar called the Black Cat, which was like a cowboy gay bar. And it was like... <laughs> It was, there was just so much suddenly that I could see that had never occurred to me before. And I, I was telling Hugh, you could do what he did for Brooklyn for every for city in, Lo- in, yeah. in America. And it would be so amazing. It could be like an incredible series. Because I feel like, yeah, San Francisco probably has been covered, right? Like that's where, yeah. that's like the epicenter of so much of what we know about gay culture. But like there's so many untold stories or erased stories that could yeah. be unearthed, you know, we could find. I'm from a well, small town in the suburbs of New York. And while I was doing this research, I discovered that there, the first black female millionaire in America, C.J. Walker, uh, lived in our town. And I knew that growing up. What I didn't know was that her daughter, Alalia, was one of the patrons of the Harlem Renaissance and particularly sort of the queer wow. voices. Oh, and that wow. she brought all of them up to my town to like have these fantastic like weekend-long parties that mm. were never talked about. Langston Hughes and County Cullen. And, and oh, I just had God. no idea. It wasn't until I was doing a research about Brooklyn that I found out the history of my own town. Well, and even where I live now, Palm Springs is, you know, it, it, it's the city council of the city of Palm Springs is all LGBTQ. It's the first city in America to have an entire city council um, that's LGBTQ. And of course, Palm Springs now is a really has a really rich and vibrant gay community. It's I think it's 40 percent of the permanent population in Palm Springs is gay, um, which is really cool. And but like when I moved here in 1985, there was a large gay community, but they were all shoved into this little town called Cathedral City, which is between <laughs> Palm Springs and Ranch Mirage, where all the presidents lived. And it was this hidden thing. There was one gay bar in town. It was called Daddy Warbucks. So they, they weren't they weren't hiding. Um, <laughs> um, and, but what happened? Um, what essentially brought the the gay renaissance to the desert was the discovery of all these great old modern homes that are in Palm Springs and essentially designers from all around the country, um, many of them uh, young gay men, came to the desert and were like, oh, we're going to redo these houses we're, you know, we're, and, and flip yeah. them. And instead of flipping them, they stayed. And <laughs> it just brought this huge gay community and this influx of arts and culture. And now there's, you know, it's it's... It's a mecca, um, and it's really sort of a, a standard bearer for what how a city can operate when it uh, when it gets rid of the ugliness of its past because it was a really anti-Semitic, anti-gay town in the past, but they've embraced it now, and it's you know it's a huge it's a it's it's a safe place. Wow. Um, it's it, it we're we're living of course in a wonderful time and also an absolutely horrible time. Um, I'm sure as as you can can tell us to be to be gay i mean as you've been traveling around the country Hugh, what's the response been and what are the conversations you've been having it's actually been really great i mean my favorite favorite responses have been a lot of people older people their 60s 70s even up into their 80s who will come up to me after a reading and be like when I lived in Brooklyn Heights in 1971, there was a bar <laughs> down a set of steps. You took a right at the mailbox. I don't remember the name anymore, you know? And it's like right. these incredibly detailed, Subculture specific stream. memories. Right. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And and my book ends basically with Stonewall. So people right. really want to talk to me about parts that I never researched. So I get to hear these amazing, crazy cool. stories. Um, 
What's the gay history of Hartford, Julia? Is there one? Um, you know, it the is one guy so, left. As, no, no. I mean, as you guys were talking, um, I was realizing how little I know about it. I'm sure there is an incredibly rich history, and you know, it's so one. It's so great to hear, you know, Hugh, you and you, Ryder and Todd as well, like investigating the history of your own city because. I've been reading a lot lately about like the dis- the decline in historical thinking, the decline in history majors. And what, by the time I got to Hartford, when I was like 23 or 24, I was like, ah, history is boring. Who cares? Whatever. Um, and now all it took was for me to live in a weird ass city. <laughs> and you start asking, <laughs> you just start asking a question. You're like, well, why is in Hartford's case, why is Hartford so segregated? why Mm -hmm. you know and you just start asking Mm -hmm. around and you peel back like decade after decade or year after year or in hartford's case event after event so things like um there's these huge set of floods in the 30s in hartford and all of um the jewish community and the immigrant community lived on the banks of this river and they all got flooded out within like five Mm. years and moved across town or to west hartford and that has shaped the history of the city in a huge way so while I don't know much about the gay history of Hartford, now I'm going to go dig around and find out. But I would encourage our listeners to just start like looking around for those random plaques yeah. and signs that Ryder's yep. talking about, because there is so much untold and so much that exists only in oral history. Um, mm-hmm. And it is so much fun to just get into it, you know, and don't be that asshole who moves to a city and within six months is like, I understand everything. Like, <laughs> I feel oh, like I could God. spend an, my entire life in Hartford and only know about 1% of what's really going on. So, right. yeah. And I will say, as you're, you're saying that to your listeners, I would just say, if you love podcasts, uh, oral histories and like old interviews are really fun. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm just going to weirdly pitch myself here. Um, I did for yeah. Hartford. I got uh, invited to freelance produce a history, a oral history podcast called The Radius Project for Hartford. We only made five episodes and then we like ran out of money. Um, but it was so fascinating. We picked, um, I and the other producers picked a few, five different locations in Hartford that are really popular and well known. And then we just examined everything within a half mile radius of those spots. Um, and it was oh, cool. so, cool so cool. Uh, it was so wonderful. And we, some of it was like we would dig into the history of a spot, um, like the riverfront, like I just mentioned. But other times, like one of the spots was this, you know, Italian pastry place that everybody likes. And we would just walk around mm. in the street and ask everybody on the street, like, what's going on in this block? What is this? And I mean, I can't even tell you how much I learned about my own city from doing that. So go look it up. It's called The Radius Project. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I want to also... Uh say how cool um in in hugh's book all the photos are there's a great um glossy section in the middle but there's also just interspersed throughout the book there's great photos um and there's this one um of coney island it's a coney island cruising photo um where who i'm sort of curious about the backstory of how you found it but it's like pretty obvious what's happening in all these photos but i can't imagine that in like in the book you found it and it was like hey dudes look for dudes like <laughs> is, is that are you looking at the one that's on like the rooftop uh it's it's the it's oh, the one yeah. that all the stuff on the beach 
there's actually a great backstory to those photos. There were a guy named Thomas Painter, and he was obsessive about male prostitutes. He actually wrote a two-volume book that was never published that were basically like a thinly veiled sociological look at all the men he paid for sex over his lifetime. Uh, and he paid a lot of men. He basically worked his way through two inherited fortunes, um, oh just cruising God. endlessly in New York. But he did it, I think, in part to justify it, but also because he was super interested in this. As he was doing it, he worked with Alfred Kinsey the whole time. So starting cool. basically immediately after World War II, he would write two and three letters a week to Alfred Kinsey being like, here are the men I picked up. Here's what we did. Here's what they asked me. Here's what their Amazing. thoughts were about all of this. Uh, and then like in 1950 or thereabouts, when all of these physique magazines were becoming a big thing, he realized that all of these Basically, kids who were living in poverty in Brooklyn were hanging out in Coney Island on the beach trying to get discovered as models. And so he was like, this is how I can get them to talk to me. If you carry a camera, even though he didn't ever publish his photos in any magazines, they were just personal and Alfred Kinsey, uh, it was a way in. And it was <laughs> right. his way to get them excited about it. And he just discovered that many of them were super willing to do basically anything. My, my favorite part of that archive is that as I was going through all his photos and all his letters, he meets this 16-year-old kid on Coney Island in like the early 50s. And at first the kid's like, I'm gonna be famous one day, so we can't have sex. And then he's like, okay, <laughs> we can take some nude photos. And then there's like, okay, we can do some things, you know, but not everything. Uh, and then the kid kind of disappears. He, he falls out of the photos, he falls out of the letters, and then suddenly, just going through the archive, there's a letter from him, and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm in LA now, and I, I have an agent, and I'm, I'm kind of making it big, so could you destroy everything? Oh. Everything, everything, everything. Oh uh, wow. and, and the guy's like, he says yes, that he'll do it, you know, but he, he'd already sent a copies of everything to Kinsey, uh, and you never get that side of the story, right? We always hear mm -hmm. about the men who picked up straight or supposedly straight men, but we never hear from them. And so I think there's always this air of, you know, are these guys lying? Are they right. making it up? How right. do we know? But I got to follow that story from this kid not being famous at all to him becoming an actor who I knew. I, I knew this person. I'd seen his movies, wow. you know? Mm. And that just meant That's so, so cool. much. Yeah. It was yeah. really a vindicating moment. Yeah. And so those pictures, I just wow. absolutely love them. Because he turned out to actually be a good photographer, too. Yeah, they're, they're amazing photos. In fact, they sort of reminded me, oddly, of this documentary I saw the other night about uh, of the uh, old Jews of Miami Beach. That, <laughs> I, I don't know if, they, if either of you saw it. It was on Netflix, and it was this photographer who ended up getting murdered, actually. Um, and they rediscovered all these old photos of... You know, all these old Jews in Miami in the 1970s. Um, so sort of like old Jews, but young gay men. Before we move on to Walt women, there's one more thing. Like, And as we're talking about it, I'm sure the readers will agree. I just love how often your book just discusses the process by which history is made and mm -hmm. how much we know and don't know and what we don't know. And we should mention... That even though I think all the examples we've talked about so far, or most of them have been um, men, this is a really intersectional book. Um, there's yeah. so many cool examples of trans or lesbian stories and experiences, and it's just really cool. But talking about mm -hmm. balancing the asymmetrical record of queer history, where it was first, you know, reported as something gross and medically weird, and then as different um, ways of coming out and reporting happened, the stories became more positive and thorough. 
Um, what was that like to comb through these different types of historical records? I think it really drove home to me the need to talk about the process of history making, right? Because yeah. I so often encounter history as this like supposedly objective thing. And when you get into it, you realize that there's a limitation. History, what we have to work off is such a small slice of what actually happened and the real experiences in the world. And when those slices themselves are really heavily skewed, which, I mean, they aren't the case of pretty much every history, but particularly you go back to the 19th century and there are very few women who are getting to write their own experiences in venues that are not heavily censored and controlled. Very few people of color. And if you don't talk about that, if you sort of don't make that visible, then it just naturalizes it. It becomes mm -hmm. as though they weren't there or they had no opinions right. or they don't have a place in history. And and that just felt not the book I wanted to write. And I realized that the only way to counter that was to actually talk about the process. And then I started to think about it and I was like, the process is actually what is important in some ways. Like that's how people mm -hmm. learn to do this history themselves. Otherwise I'm just giving them little bits of things that happened and they have to take my word for it. But if I can walk them through my own process, then we all get those skills and, and they can see how I did it and they can critique me based on that, you know, and mm -hmm. they can have a real understanding of, of what I was doing. And maybe they'll see, you know, failures that I didn't recognize, or maybe they'll see ways to do things in their own life. Right. Uh, and I won't feel so uncomfortable about the fact that like the 20, the, you know, 19th century is just like white dude after white dude talking right. about himself. Right. right. Mm -hmm. But you, you so you essentially, you, you, you drops the presumption of objectivity, you know, you sort of give it up and say like, it's never going to be an, an objective exercise to just embrace you know that i am a person writing this and i'm right. gathering that yeah that's really smart man that's really really smart. that's that bennington <laughs> workshop attitude. oh jesus <laughs> i don't know about that that um, was the point of all of our nonfiction workshops as i recall it's yeah. true it's all about hugh, me. hugh can i yeah. can i ask you though one one question about yourself actually though is that when you're reading this how did it and you're reading all of the you know the struggle obviously that goes into it what was your coming out story? And did you think about that as you were writing this book as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I came out, I had never met an out gay person in my life. Jesus. Mm. I had a couple older cousins who everyone knew, you know, like it was a, right. a, an open secret. But I can remember my, my mother and her sisters having this conversation at a party about how well, I'm just going to ask, you know, we're, we're going to ask. Uh, and that's the level, that was the closest thing I had to sort of out queer role models. I right. never had it taught in school uh, the closest, I would say, was in seventh grade. Our Spanish teacher took a whole class period to teach us. It was one of those classes where she was teaching us about the differences in slang in different um, Spanish-speaking countries. And the example she used was faggot. And so we learned how to say faggot in, like, every what? country in Latin America. Uh, <laughs> Why? What? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, like, the only LGBT history I got in school, basically. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. And this oh was, like, 1992, God. you know? Oh it's not that God. long ago. Yeah. But it, it was just a whole different world, just an absolutely different world. Um, and that you know, person is that person still alive? She's and you know what? She's actually a teacher that I loved. Like I, even at the time, I was like, well, this kind of sucks, but it's not like anyone else is any better. So at least she's just right. saying it. And she was a teacher who tried to make things make sense to us and to, to teach us about the world and ground it in real things. And the example she happened to use was awful for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I actually and liked her. And for the her. fabric of American culture. Yeah. 
I mean, she wasn't the biology teacher who informed us on like day two that lesbians were going to take over the world because they didn't need men to reproduce. And so we had to sort of actively fight lesbians. Oh, God. Uh, that one okay. I did not like. Uh, so I think that for a long time, my interest in history was was driven by this need to see myself somewhere. Right. I, I was looking right. for a mirror. Uh, and thank God, what I actually found was a window. What I started to realize was that like, I think most of us who do queer history are coming to it because we just don't know anything and we want that. And that was great as a starting point, but I needed to go much further and deeper or all I ever was doing was sort of finding myself in history, mm -hmm. which I think is often inappropriate. You, you project yourself, you don't find yourself. You're not there. They were there. Mm -hmm. And right. that's what doing this made me realize is that it, I could see similarities, but I also need to see those differences. Uh, and so I, I sort of used that place of, of not seeing anything as a, as a starting point, but then wanted to go much deeper with the actual book. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, it's a listeners, uh, Hugh's book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, is a fantastic piece of history. It's also extraordinarily well written, and you get to know Hugh a bit from reading it as well. So if you like listening to him talk to us, you'll like listening to him tell you the history of this uh, fascinating city. Um, now, with that being said, <laughs> on to Walt Whitman, uh, which actually has a lot of parallels. Us, so. <laughs> now you made us read poetry. It's not like we're really changing the subject. <laughs> no. We're just kind of no, moving we're into it. Yeah. We're, we're going to a foundational garment, basically. Of yeah. <laughs> well, so um, so I, I, I don't know if, if we really need to introduce Walt Whitman to our to our listeners. They probably know him well, but um, I guess it's, it's worth introducing this selection of poems. Um, so Whitman's famous work is, is, is a book called Leaves of Grass, which he published when he was 35 uh, in 1855. And then uh, he continued to write, but it was always revision re revisions and then additions to Leaves of Grass. He published, I, I don't know how many editions in his lifetime, uh, oh, almost Nine. 20. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, okay. More, I don't know. I don't, yeah. He published a lot of editions and, and they, he would change titles. He would, but, um, the, the the sort of most scandalous scandalous section was the Calum, Calamus poems, which were um, the gayest poems, let's just call them what they were, <laughs> where Whitman spoke of homosexual feelings and homosexual love, um, and they were also changed constantly throughout the, the different editions. Um, and so I guess relatively recently, in the 1950s, um, someone discovered the original manuscript um, of 12... Uh, handwritten poems that became the Calamus poems um, and they have been put back together and illustrated by Brian Selznick in this incredible little edition um, that I uh, I just love. Uh, I'm like mm -hmm. a, a Whitman fanatic. I thought I had read everything that Whitman had, had written and I guess mm -hmm. I had obviously because I've read Leaves of Grass cover to cover multiple times so I've, I've read versions of these poems but to read these 12 mini um uh poems in a row is a very different experience yeah um, and and then these illustrations are just incredible so Hugh uh, how did you find this book or how did you hear about it and what's the story I actually have a very personal relationship to this book in a lot of different ways uh Karen Carpenter who writes the afterward which is an incredible sort of examination of the poems yeah. and how this came together so uh, and so smart she was someone that I interviewed when I was writing my book about uh, women's yeah. history and, and she was super helpful and Brian Selznick I was his house sitter when I was at Bennington. <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> and that living there was how I was able to go to grad school. I, I basically oh, spent wow. all of grad school as a house sitter in other people's homes because I didn't have any money. 
And so Brian has always been, you know, sort of this like uh, touchstone figure where I'm like, wow, one day maybe I could be an author like him, you know? And so oh, the, cool. to get yeah. to talk about his book is really exciting. Awesome. Um, and then I just, his art is so beautiful and the poems are so beautiful. It, it's really just a gorgeous book. I think often these days there's this kind of fungible idea of the book. It's a text that maybe you read on your Kindle or you listen to or you, and this is a book. You yeah. need mm -hmm. to experience it. Has to be That's what I love yeah. about it. Yeah, so it's 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 illustrated, but it's not. I'm just to explain to our listeners, it's not illustrated with a like a poem and then a, a drawing on the other page. It's actually it's more sort of a a comic book. It's like half a graphic novel. It's like a graphic novel that leads into the poems and then leads back into the graphic novel. Right. Yes. And the and the the drawings work sequentially. So as you turn the pages, they sort of tell a story through images. And then when you get to the poems, right. all of those images appear. So it's like this crazy, it's super satisfying mm -hmm. because you're like, why am I looking at the moon now? Why am I in a room with snow filling it up? But then you start reading the poems and, and those, you know, certain words come out at you and you realize like, oh my God, they, I've, I've been primed right. for the poems by the drawings. And then you go back and you look at the drawings again after reading the poems. It just has this incredible relationship. In terms of like reading challenging poetry, it's actually a really great way into it. You know, yeah. like you're, you are primed emotionally oh, for the experience yeah. as much as you are for the words by seeing the pictures. Right. I, I thought, man, they should do all books of poetry like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want, I want, I want Selznick to, to illustrate all of Whitman. Like I just wanted to do the entire Leaves of Grass. I think this is incredible. Yeah. That would be a lot of work. <laughs> you guys so go and look at, um, yeah. cause it's all online, um, at Whitman's original handwritten poems also. They're also in here. Yeah, but yeah. Well, you, you can the blow them up yeah, and everything yeah. and look at them online. It's really such a yeah. weird experience to see his handwriting. Well, one so thing cool. I loved about this um, in the afterward is the examination of these pieces of paper as artifacts and analyzing like how many little holes are in them and all the different ways he found mm -hmm. them together and that there's a stain on them that's either blood or like a piece of a leaf or whatever we're just mm -hmm. guessing but thinking of them as physical objects just adds to the textural experience of this book although no todd i did well, not go online and obsessively blow them up. <laughs> <laughs> i just love that karen approaches history from such a 360 degree view you know it's, yeah. it's literary analysis but it's also historical analysis and biographical analysis and then that physical analysis of looking at the pages and i mean the she's just a, a great thinker and has, knows so much about whitman and i think having that afterward and the, the sort of illustrative foreword from mm. Brian, it's like you get the emotional part of the poems pulled out for you, and then you get the sort of like textual analysis pulled out for yeah. you, and in the middle you get to just experience Whitman, which, you know, I read him in high school, but I didn't, I didn't understand no. anything, and I don't think I appreciated it, and this helps me appreciate it in a real way. Yeah, I, I feel like this is one of the best ways, if, if anyone's not read Whitman, it's like the perfect mm -hmm. way to introduce Like I, I'm probably going to end up giving this book as a gift I think a lot. so too. Yeah. You know, because I'm always like the big Whitman fanatic and I'm always the one who's like, if you're going to do it, you got to do it because you got to read Song of Myself, right. which is so long. But, you know, this way is like such a great introduction to just the, the energy of his poems and, and also... I mean, yeah, in a lot of ways, these poems reveal what I think has been sort of a different in different generations acknowledged and then disavowed about mm -hmm. women. It's pretty amazing, like because I came to women as 
through Allen Ginsberg as a teenager. So I first heard of Whitman as, uh, you know, a gay poet. Like mm-hmm. it was pretty much because Ginsberg was a gay poet and, and he, they, Whitman was his champion, you know, and, or he was a champion of Whitman's as a gay poet. But then when I got into Whitman in college, there was a lot of essays and discussions that sort of retreated from that idea mm-hmm. because of course the reality is it doesn't seem like Whitman had many actual relationships. It's, right. You know, it seems like mm-hmm. he only had one or two kind of failed attempts to have a relationship um and and so the, i remember just encountering the word that they that i think it, it's it's um uh harold bloom and so you know other like these sort of western canon authority figures use the word onanism mm-hmm. which is like the very <laughs> fancy way to say he masturbated a lot uh and and that that he he lived without you know and the reason i think that, that it's it's such a concern is that whitman's poems are so much about the body. They're so much about physical, sensual pleasure mm-hmm. and in a way that all the other transcendentalists aren't. You know, you read Emerson and Thoreau and they, these are people that are actively avoiding the body in so many <laughs> ways, even when they're writing about the, the glories of nature. And Whitman was this sort of like figure who celebrated the importance of physicality and being alive in the world physically and sensually. And so, you know, his sexuality is there. It's in, I mean, if you read Song of Myself, like the central passage is is clearly... A sexual or sensual physical encounter with somebody under a tree and and um you know to avoid you, you can't avoid whitman as a human you know as a, as a body and man these poems finally kind of brought that home for me like these are the poems where i feel like he was admitting just to himself and and he actually says these are this is more important than my poetry yeah. like the, more than the yeah. songs right. i'm writing is my my physical ex- existence and my desire my physical desire to live in the world and love in well the in the it's in so the second beautiful. poem which i think is maybe the best poem of his i've ever read um which is the one that begins i saw in louisiana a live oak growing he yeah. compares himself uh, uh he says well i'll just read it i saw in louisiana a live oak growing All alone stood it, and the moss hung down from the branches. Without any companion, it grew there, glistening out with joyous leaves of dark green. And its look, rude, unbending, lusty, made me think of myself. You can't get any more vivid than that. (laughs) But also, the part of the point of view of the poem is, how can I be so alive and so lusty and yet completely alone? So dead. And, you know, I can't move towards anything. I mean, what an Mm -hmm. incredible image. Um, One of my favorites, this is a really short one, so I'm going to read the whole thing, is Poem 7. And this one goes back to thinking about how we record history and what's important and all that good stuff. What think you I have taken my pen to record? Not the battleship, perfect modeled, majestic, that I saw today arrive in the offing under full sail nor the splendors of the past day, nor the splendors of the night that envelops me, nor the glory and growth of the great city spread around me, but the two men I saw today on the pier, parting the parting of dear friends. The one to remain hung on the other's neck and passionately kissed him, while the one to depart tightly pressed the one to remain in his arms. He's saying the... the only important thing to record in history is human relationships and closeness. Right. And that's, I mean, it's so beautiful. And that's actually the sixth poem, not the seventh poem. Oh, whoops. But I think you're right. that yeah. This idea of like what we record and what matters. I mean, the thing that really 
was driven home to me by reading Whitman in the context of the history that I was researching was how much Whitman consciously constructed his writing and Leaves of Grass as an attempt to both define his sexuality, to come up with words for it, like adhesiveness and comrade, mm -hmm. and also to spread that to other people. And in the third poem in uh, Leaves of Grass, in Cabin Ships at Sea, he says, I'm writing this book to send it out in the world to see who responds mm. to it, you know? Mm. He sees himself as a figure who is different because of his sexuality, which which is not true of many people in his era mm -hmm. in that way. And, and that's just so incredible to watch someone groping for understanding mm -hmm. and to, to, to then write those words down and try to share them and try to create a shared culture mm -hmm. uh, is, is incredible. And scary, I am. Well, with. and and it's sad. Yeah. I mean, what I, I I reading these poems in particular was was the saddest I've ever felt about Whitman, um, because you know I've I've read a biography of my giant Jerome loving biography of Walt Whitman here. You guys can see it, and um, you know one of the reasons that I wanted to read the biography is that he is kind of mysterious. Mm -hmm. You know, he was and. And reading these poems, you kind of know why. Right. You know, it's because he he was just in a time where he could not express what was the most powerful drive in him, you know, this physical desire. And so reading these poems, it really just... It, it's it's There's 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 real tragedy there. Um, and, you know, and the fact that he was able to animate... Uh, to, to find a way to to channel that frustration and that ultimate dissatisfaction into some of the most beautiful works of literature I have ever read is such a tribute to, you know, what what he could do, like, with that moment, with that tension. But reading these poems, which he kind of wrote on his own and then didn't show anybody, reveals, I think, just that there's something, there is loneliness there, you know, like that passage that you read, Todd, like that, he's saying, like, I am, I'm not gonna, I can't, I can't just be the right. tree, you know, I need to have somebody else in my life, and it's like, yeah, we all kind of do, you know, and he couldn't do it. But the fascinating thing about Whitman, though, is that he did find those people in Brooklyn and, and throughout his life, I mean, he really manages to find and recognize uh, them that love as I myself am capable of right. loving, and right. he is, like you said, a tricky, you know, he, he doesn't always tell you the truth, and particularly as he got more famous, I think he had to retreat from some of what he was able to write when right. he was this unknown kid in Brooklyn. Right. You know, or not kid, but he was like. But do you think that he had like happy relationships? Oh, yeah. yeah, Peter oh, okay. Doyle okay. Uh, is the big one in his life, and he writes, you know, ton. I, I mean, I think they're about as happy as any long-term relationships. He definitely <laughs> right. gets his heart broken. He finds other people, and they fight, and they, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I really do think that he did find many men who returned his affection, both as intimate relationships and as like a community right. of people. Uh, and that what became hard for him truly was in, in later years having to sort of hide and deny, particularly as the next wave of perhaps like slightly more out in the sense that we think right. of it, or people who understood themselves as homosexual, maybe sort of, uh, came to him asking for information. You know, he would, he kind of avoided it and, and yeah. said, oh, you know, I, I had six children in, in New Orleans, you know, right. came up with these lies. And, and you can see him kind of struggling with how much to be honest. And, and I mean, you know, his, his uh, amenuensis, Horace Trouble, he would say to him, there is this like deep secret at the heart of me that you don't know that is the key to everything. And ah, maybe I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and then he'd be like, this letter is so important. Here, I'm going to burn it in front of you. <laughs> well, and that was one of the hard things about doing my research in general is that everybody burns their letters at some point. But you see that with Whitman, that he comes from this place of like, I have met these men. I know there are comrades. I am, you know, the midnight orgies of young men. And then to come to a place where he is this celebrated poet of America, and he's sort of like, 
What can I say? Well, so let me ask you a question, though. So, I mean, I think we we frequently, more so with poetry than with any other written form, ascribe the emotions and the feelings of the narrator with the author when that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Mm-hmm. Now, more often than not, perhaps with Whitman, we found that he is, in fact, talking about himself. But when I'm reading these poems and when I'm seeing the revisions that he's making also, which is the super cool part about seeing the actual written text, he's revising himself as well, which I think creates this question of unreliability. Like, okay, are we to believe this is Whitman talking about himself or is Whitman creating a a character of the narrator? Um, And and that's, that's that that larger question of confusing the art with the artist, right? And what I love about Karen's afterward is that she sort of says, look, we can't necessarily say that these are just purely from his perspective. This isn't, you know, nonfiction in that sense. But what we can say is these themes were so all important to him that he revised them over and over again. And he created this intimate, personal little collection, this chapbook that he then felt the need to destroy and revise and constantly put other places. Like we can see the importance of the themes Mm -hmm. and we can see how they relate to his life. Even if we can't say, yeah, he had this relationship that ended and then it destroyed him and then he recovered. And And then of course there's the, um, there's the ninth poem, um, which is pretty amazing, right? Um, I dreamed in a dream of a city where all the men were like brothers Oh, I saw them tenderly love each other. I often saw them in numbers, walking hand in hand. I dreamed that was the city of robust friends. Nothing was greater there than manly love. It led the rest. It was seen every hour in the actions of the men of that city and in all their looks and words. Ugh. It's like the idealistic community. The utopian dream. Wishes was there, yeah. (laughs) But it also drives home that he was a Victorian in his own way and that there's this idea of like a separate sphere. Right. right? It's a city of men, not gay right. people. Right. Yeah. And that I think homosociality is as important to these poems as homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Right. He lived in a world where men were expected to gather with men and have intense emotions with each other. And women were expected to do the same with other women. The idea that there was a, a thing that was a sexual orientation that was the same for men and women, I think would have been rather foreign to him. Uh, and we forget that when we discuss the sort of emergence of homosexuality at the end of the 19th century. They were coming from a world where they were expected to sleep in the same bed with other men at times, you know, and, right. and profess the strongest of emotions to people of your same gender. Right. And that there's a real change that happens when we suddenly become a world of mixed sex interactions and that kind of emotional connection to another man, regardless of the physical aspects of it, becomes really suspect. Right. Yeah. And I think Whitman captures that so well, that intensity of of loving other men, sexually, yes, but also just being able to love another man and walk arm in arm with him. Men are fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, this is is something I think about fairly often just in sort of the scope of teaching young men, um, but just also being... Being a person who, when I love you, I tell you that I love you. Like, I feel like I should do that. So, Ryder, I love you. Julia, I love you. Hugh, I love you. Um, (laughs) But, you know, men just have a really hard time feeling like they can express vulnerability to one another. And I think that obviously creates this culture of toxic masculinity where a guy doesn't feel comfortable to say that I'm scared or that I'm embarrassed or I'm a failure or this or that or whatever thing. And so they got to be this other thing. If more men could read some poetry and actually feel a human emotion, God, where would we be as a society? 
<laughs> yeah, well, I'm amazed how many, how, how few men I know, like even my closest friends, uh, very smart people, they, they don't read like fiction mm-hmm. or poetry. You know, they read nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Like most men I know read like uh, subjects that they're interested right. in. Do you know what I mean? They'll pick, a, they'll pick a subject. But the idea of reading like a novel, um, no. And poetry, absolutely not. Like that never occurs, yeah. um, which is fascinating to me because to me it's like the best adventures I have in life for picking up a book and being like, where's this going to take yeah. me? But yeah, I think it, the, the culture of masculinity is not big on reading. Well, and I, I agree with you. And it's all, I mean, it all is intertwined with these social skills and empathy skills. Um, and even saying skills makes them feel really like consumerist and capitalist. But <laughs> I, I just saw a float through my social media this week and I wish I could remember where I saw it, but, um, two linked studies, one that, you know, friendships and loose acquaintances are predictors of long life and good health and that men are, they really struggle with friendship and that married men rely on their wives to married, I should say heterosexual men rely on their wives to maintain friendships or to be their only friend. And that is so harmful to men's health and men's well-being. Um, and these are these subjects are all tied together, of course. Like, if you can't say to someone, like, I care about you, so can we just hang out on Thursday for no reason other than I want to hang out, um, your whole quality of life starts to go down. Patriarchy hurts men, yeah, you guys. Absolutely. Let's kill it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and it's, it's remarkably... Um, vigorous and and powerful like patriarchy obviously was the the, sort of this dominating force in the victorian era and we dismantled the entire victorian way of living but patriarchy is like "Ah, i can handle that (laughs) that's so true (laughs) i can adapt (laughs) well and you know there's there's actually a moment hugh um in your book where you talk about um how the gay bars after prohibition or during prohibition started becoming gay and straight bars and everyone was sort of hanging out together um and, and like yeah like that that should that it's called humanity. <laughs> right. right. Well, there had to be a time where people were taught, and it, it, that time happens to be the '40s, where people were taught that your sexual orientation is a dominating way of understanding mm-hmm. yourself as a person. That there are basically two, maybe three. We're not really certain about bisexuality. <laughs> One is better than the other, and they're invisible. So you have to police yourself at all times and everyone around you to make sure you're not gay and they're not gay. Right. And that causes everything mm-hmm. to separate. And I think it, it stems in part, again, from this, this leaving behind of Victorian homosociality. Uh, but it, it gets twisted uh, into mm-hmm. this idea of homophobia. Yeah. Well, I, I really think what you've done here with your book is super important. Um, people will get a lot from reading it, but also they should then pick up uh, this great slim little book of poetry and art and read them back to back. Or, or either one can be read first. They, they help each other out, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Um, Absolutely. It's, it, and, you know, if, if you're a young man and you're listening to this podcast, welcome. It's called Literary Disco. Um, <laughs> um, but, but like, I, I mean, I, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, like, man, I, I've always b- tried to be as tolerant of everything that in the world. But being tolerant isn't enough. Tolerant means that, you're, that you are offended and are going to let somebody... willing to overlook yeah. the house. Yeah, suppress your own hatred. Yeah, it's right. like, well, I'm going to tolerate you. I mean, it's just so absurd. We, we've got to be better human beings in 21st century. If Walt Whitman was 
was talking about this shit and hiding in you know the 1800s god shouldn't we be beyond that shit by now we we have flying cars do, do we have flying cars yeah tomorrow talking watches that we do have talking, do have talking watches, watches. <laughs> well and so and that's why i think if you're young uh a young man and you're like well i, I don't know about reading about gay people and stuff um, you should read when Brooklyn was queer on your Kindle, so you're not scared of your dumb friend Zach or Chad. <laughs> well, and let me add. And um, let, let me add uh, something. Learn about the history of America uh, because I have a suspicion that most of our listeners, or at least let's say sixty percent, are female. And the question is, you know, how do we? work towards this purpose too and i i agree with Ryder. when i was reading this uh live oak with moss i was like this is the best gift book i have ever seen this is like a trojan horse yeah. um so yeah. for the women out there who are like how do i open this conversation with my boyfriend or my dad or my brother um give them this beautiful book um this would be a great gateway yeah great gateway and and it's right there in poem number twelve to the young man. Many things to absorb. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, yeah. Hugh. You're the best. Well, Hugh, thanks yeah. for coming to visit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was awesome. Thank y'all. And uh, and Hugh, are you going to be on tour for the rest of the year? Where can people find you in the next coming months? I'm here in LA tonight, although or tomorrow I'm giving a talk at the One Archives, and then I'm heading to Heidelberg, Germany, where weirdly they have a large American Studies program. Uh, so I'll be doing that later in May, and then I'm just back in New York doing a bunch of Pride-related things all around Woo-hoo. the city. Cool. Awesome. Well, if if uh, if you get a chance to see Hugh in person, he's a dynamic performer. You guys should all see him go talk about this book. Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah.